everyone, and welcome back to the latest edition of CouncilCast, the official podcast of the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers. I'm Katie Oberkirker on the Market Intelligence team here at the Council. Here with me today is Dr. Ben Miller, the Chief Strategy Officer at Wellbeing Trust, which is a national foundation with clinical, community-based, and political roots dedicated to advancing mental, social, and spiritual health in the U.S., We're going to be talking today about mental health in the workplace. Ben, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Katie. So I'd like to set the stage with a few stats. And Ben, I'm sure you're well aware of these numbers, but just for those listening, there are about 45 million adults in the U.S. that suffer from a mental illness. And and this stat surprised me. Depression, which is one of the most common mental illnesses affects about 17 million adults. So putting those numbers in the context of the workplace, mental health costs employers billions of dollars every year, and depression alone causes an estimated 200 million lost work days each year. So it's impacting not only the cost of care, but but also productivity, so not coming to work or or showing up but working at a subpar level. So we're in need of a dialogue on mental health in the workplace for a lot of different reasons. Um, But Ben, from your vantage point, what's one thing that has surprised you about the evolution of mental health care in the past few years? Well, let's start with the data that you just laid out, because I I do want to answer your question, but I also want the listeners to be aware that when we talk about issues around mental health and addiction, when we use those that are oftentimes identified as having the mental health issue, it's not just the person with the diagnosis that's impacted. It's their family, it's their friends, it's their coworkers. And so while we can really look at the percentage or the number of folks that have a a given diagnosis in any number of years, um, what really is the different story, which is the thing that's surprising me the most, is our our willingness to embrace a new narrative around mental health. And that new narrative is that mental health is all of us. It's my friends, it's my family, as, as I mentioned. And while we need to be able to speak up and speak out when it is us, we also need to be able to speak to those that might also be are being impacted by mental health. So to me, that's surprising. I remember like 10 years ago, and Katie, maybe you remember this too, like standing on stages and talking to people and mental health was this hot topic that nobody wanted to talk about. So maybe it wasn't a hot topic, maybe it was a cold topic. It was something that we used to have to convince clinicians in healthcare settings to pay attention to. And now seemingly it's on everyone's agenda for good reason because of the data you mentioned, but also the fact that whatever we're doing or have been doing just isn't working. So to me, I'm surprised by the change in the narrative and the willingness of our society to actually embrace talking about issues of mental health and addiction. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's a really good point, Ben, that it's not just the person who has a mental illness, but um, it's the ripple effects of that. So it's their family and their friends um, and their employer um, they're, they're colleagues who are also impacted in some way. And I, I, think that's, I think that's a necessary way to, to think about mental illness. And I appreciate that now, you know, it seems like at a national level, we're, we're trending in that di- direction to, to have this new narrative. 
I, I want to switch gears and, and talk about this from a policy perspective for a minute. So do you think there are any proposals out there right now that are addressing some of these ways to prevent mental illness? Yeah, there's a lot of policy discussions right now, and it's mainly been driven by our opioid epidemic. And so as many of your listeners know, we've been losing people prematurely to deaths by opioids um, more than we've ever seen in the past. And just as a data point, in 2017, we lost more lives than we've ever lost on record to drug, alcohol, and suicide. And opioids, specifically synthetic opioids, were a big cause of that. So the dominant public policy response has not been necessarily around mental health or addiction per se, though that might be a deeper kind of driver of these issues. It's really been driven by the opioid epidemic. And so taking advantage of that is one thing that I think public policymakers are doing. Um, as your listeners know or may not know, there's this thing called an election happening next year. And uh, for better or for worse, there's a lot of discussion right now on who's got the latest, greatest, best ideas as to how to address mental health and addiction in this country. And so rather than narrow this down to a specific policy, I'll say at a federal level, I think it's really exciting to see how some of the um, candidates on the Democratic side, at least, are bringing forward new ideas. And I can't tell you the last time I've seen an election where so many people have embraced a new dialogue around mental health. They're bringing forward policy options that, frankly, as a policy wonk himself, I'm extremely excited by it. And I hope that that narrative continues throughout the general election where mental health is given a, a front row of any discussion around public policy. At a state level, I think that we're seeing a lot of innovation happen around mental health. And whether it be something as, as nuanced as a new payment model that might reinforce the, the concept of a team that can take care of your mental health and addiction needs, whether it's something that is a, is a little bit more um, you know, sophisticated, like a delivery reform where we begin to look at what are the characteristics of a practice or a workplace or a school where mental health is more seamlessly integrated. That's, that's coming from our communities. And rather than it being kind of a top-down policy approach, what we're seeing is a lot of communities bringing forward these great ideas, hoping that a policymaker or somewhere out there in policy land are going to pay attention to it and then wrap policy around it. Absolutely. And I, I agree with your point that this election is – looking at mental health care differently, especially, you know, I've seen proposals coming out that are targeting treatment for addiction, but also, you know, tackling issues like isolation and loneliness. And, and so it gets to that idea of um, integrating treatment, but also looking for preventative measures um, to, to stop mental illness before, um, before symptoms get worse. Yeah, and I'll just give you one more example. Sorry to interrupt you, Katie, just one more example, because um, what you said sparked this, is that in Denver, there was actually a ballot initiative where the folks living in Denver voted on a tax increase on themselves just to put more money into mental health treatment, ideally with the, the vision of being able to go upstream into schools, into places that we can um, proactively identify need and then ultimately prevent some of the issues around mental health. That's such an interesting example, and I think harkens back to my initial question, which is, you know, something that surprised you about mental health care, and it's this idea of a new narrative. And, you know, it's clearly, it clearly has a lot of layers, and it, it's interesting to hear that it's finding its way um, down to the state level. Do you see some 
distinctions in mental health programs between populations and Medicaid versus commercial coverage? Yeah, great question. And uh, for many of your listeners, I'm not sure um, if they've been involved in Medicaid programs themselves or maybe have had family members enrolled or have mainly been on the commercial side. Um, Medicaid is the largest payer for mental health services in the country. And because of that, sometimes you see a little bit more innovation that might come forward by the states looking at novel ways to provide treatment. And this, I'll give you an example from, um, I'll go back to Colorado, the state that I'm in today. Colorado, for the last several years, working through a federal grant called the State Innovation Model, uh, looked to ways that it could integrate primary care and mental health seamlessly in over 330 practices. And if you, if you go back in time six years and you would say, wow, you know, integrating into 330 practices, that's a big deal. Um, well, we couldn't have done it without the support of the feds coming in, but we also couldn't have done it without the support of the commercial payers also coming to the table in alignment with Medicaid. And the bottom line is that we're, we're really trying to play catch up with delivery reform, which is moving ahead much faster than coverage and financing discussions. And the SIM model in Colorado provided us a unique example of where we could see innovation in Medicaid that also included commercial plans. Now, to, to really answer your question, though, I think, I think some of the main distinctions typically have to do with the comprehensiveness of the benefit. And not to get overly wonky here, but depending on what type of uh, coverage you might have as an individual in the commercial market, there's relatively skimpy benefits out there for mental health and addiction coverage. Even though we've had mental health parity in this land for 10 years, um, we don't necessarily do a great job of enforcing it. And as some changes recently in the last couple of years have shown, we're uh, actually offering uh, plans that are cheaper in cost, but may cost you more in the long run out of pocket. Those benefits may not necessarily be as robust as a Medicaid benefit for mental health. And I think that the fundamental distinction here is depending on where you are in the commercial market, you might have a tremendous mental health benefit. It might be the best thing ever, and that still may not necessarily meet your needs. Um, what we have to do as a country, whether it's in Medicaid or commercial, is we've really got to define what excellence looks like for coverage when it went specifically focused on including mental health and addiction. Uh, we haven't done that yet. Uh, we, as I said already, we've been playing catch up for a long time with mental health, and we've not truly put on the table what a good, robust, comprehensive mental health and addiction benefit should be. The best thing that we can give is the parity example, which is that whatever your medical surgical benefits are, your mental health and addiction benefits need to be at the same level. I want to come back to to something that you said, Ben, which struck me is that we haven't defined what excellence looks like in terms of mental health care. And it, it struck me because everyone talks about the quality of care here in the U.S., despite some of the, you know, the cost problems, um, access problems, you know, people typically refer back to to quality of care. And I know that large group health plans were, were charged with covering mental health um, and substance abuse benefits at the same level as general health care services when the ACA was passed. So how do you think that directive has fallen short? Well, sadly, I mean, the promise of this law, parity, has gone unfulfilled. And I think if we look at just an issue like access to, to care for mental health, it remains elusive for so many. And when we see the trends in deaths, preventable deaths, because people can't get access to care, 
it sends to me a pretty strong signal that we're not doing enough to enforce parity. Uh, we actually worked with some partners and published a, an analysis about a year ago that found that 32 states are failing. They receive a failing grade for their own parity statute. Um, the statutes that are in place, and again, I'm, I'm going to get a little wonky here, I mean, these really, at a state level, reinforce federal law. So it provides an, a mechanism for states to have a little bit stronger arm into as to what they do around mental health parity. And we know that strong state parity laws are a major foundation for ending some of that discrimination that exists around coverage for mental health and addiction. And without these laws, it's, I mean, literally for many people, it's a frustrating lottery. You have no idea what you're going to get. You have no idea what the bill is going to look like when it shows up in the mail. You have no idea if you're going to get denied services. And that's in part because there's little to no transparency as to what health plans offer for medical and mental health benefits. And so the, the purest definition of mental health parity is just that whatever the medical surgical benefit is, mental health and addiction needs to be at the same level. That includes things that you can quantify and things that you can't quantify. Things like, you know, everything from your co-pays and your deductibles all the way down to like network adequacy. Things that are extremely important when looking at access. And we don't really know why this hasn't been enforced as much as it should other than that um, we've had a culture for the last 40 plus years, 50 years now, that has separated out the mental health benefits so egregiously that trying to now integrate it back into a whole where we are holding people accountable is really hard for folks. It's really hard for them to conceptualize what that looks like. So we need to know first what our benefits are. And so for your listeners, I mean, I challenge people all the time. Do you know what your health insurance benefits are? Do you know what your out-of-pocket is expected to be? Do you know what your deductible is? Do you know who your premiums are? Do you know who you can and can't see? And if you can do that, and you know that on a basic level for health insurance around medical, then the application to mental health should be you know, technically the same. So if for those of listening, I would encourage you to talk to your folks. Um, um, uh, if you're representing a plan or you're talking to someone within you know, a particular plan, just say, hey, how are you all doing at enforcing mental health parity? Bringing that back up, takes the burden off the patient to constantly prove that they needed the service or their health insurance was at a certain level to get the mental health benefit. And it puts it back on us, leaders in this field, those responsible for making sure that we are providing good, adequate, comprehensive care. We gotta know our rights. And if folks are interested in how they can get more involved in this, I mean, there's a wonderful website that was set up um, called ParityTrack.org. And this really helps with info and allows people to know their rights around mental health parity. It also shows you good and bad examples of parity enforcement, both at a state and local level. That's great, Ben. Um, you said that was ParityTracks.org? ParityTracks, yep, P-A-R-I-T-Y-T-R-A-C-K.org. Great. I, I want to shift now to start talking about the employer space again. So... New ventures like Haven, which is the, the brainchild of Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan, they have the opportunity here to really change the game when it comes to healthcare delivery. So what kind of opportunities do you think they have to really shift the dialogue and expectations around mental health coverage? Well, just like we were talking about a minute ago, like our presidential election, like celebrities embracing mental health, Haven and others in this space can really help change the culture around health and healthcare as they are willing to bring forward a new vision for coverage where mental health is not separate and a distinct thing, but truly core or foundational to someone's health. 
Um, I'm watching this really closely because I want to know how they're going to define and address health, mental health, excuse me. Are they going to carve it out and say, okay, here's the mental health and addiction benefit? Or are they going to make it foundational and say, here's your health benefit? Oh, yeah, of course it includes mental health and addiction, and that's in there. But it's not a separate and distinct thing. To me, this is a huge opportunity. Can they change the culture of how we think about traditional health insurance coverage and even including delivery? Or will they keep it fragmented? Will they have, it, have a separate mental health benefit, as I suggested? I think that there's a, a lot of innovation that over the next couple of years we'll see come forward from the, um, you know, all, all sorts of markets, public, private. I think we'll see it all. But the thing I'm looking for is if it limits your ability to get truly comprehensive access to mental health, wherever you present, it's probably not a good benefit. If, you, if it treats you different because you have a mental health or addiction need, then you do a medical need. It's probably not a good thing. This is going to require leadership. It's going to require courage. It's going to require vision. And if, if people like Haven and, you know, they've got an amazingly talented leadership team, if they can bring forward a much more comprehensive vision of mental health, then count me in. I'll high fives all around. I think this would be a tremendous game changer. Absolutely. And I mean, and employers are an important audience in this conversation. They cover a great deal of the population when it comes to, to benefits. I, I want to talk though about something, a thing that's come up a few times so far about the, the role of community. And so we talk a lot about social determinants of health, um, but, but really that that conversation is focused on Medicaid or, or the uninsured um, or people below the, the poverty line where, you know, factors like food and, and housing security are, are something serious. What, you know, thinking about the employer space um, where, where poverty and housing might not be the main drivers that are impacting mental health, what are some social factors that you think do contribute to a person's mental health um, in the workplace? Yeah, I, I love the way you frame that because community conditions or those elements in our communities that allow us to have optimal well-being, they're essential and they're oftentimes, they go unnoticed. We don't talk about them. We're not screening for social factors when we're looking at someone's health status. I mean, we should be, and it should be a standard, but we very rarely do this. And so, especially in the workplace, we might have um, an employee assistance program on site, screening for depression or some type of substance use disorder. But are we looking at things like affordable housing or stable transportation or access to healthy foods or, uh, you know, debt, uh, debt counseling? Financing is a tremendous stressful burden. Excuse me, financial uh, issues are a tremendous burden on so many people. And we don't always think about that. Well, you're at your job, you're making money, you're doing what you need to be doing. Surely everything's okay, but that's not true. We have all these amazingly robust, stressful factors that impact us daily. And if more people would have the conversation around mental health and well-being the way that you just articulated, I actually think we would be in a very different place as a country. Because how we screen, how we talk about these issues would be done differently. We wouldn't start with, you know, a, a screening tool that looks at a specific diagnosis, we would start with where do you live? Tell me about your family. Things that we knew decades ago mattered more than anything else. Social determinants of health, as you just mentioned, I mean, this is a, you know, a 40 plus year old idea. 
And we give ourselves a lot of credit in 2019 that we're finally paying attention to it. But you're right. Um, we've actually evolved since 1977, which was the first time we really saw a new medical model embrace social factors. And now we've evolved to this larger construct of community. Community being self-defined. It could be your work. It could be your home. It could be your church. It could be many number of things. But how you are able to establish a firm foundation that allows you to succeed in those things in your life that, to me, are the community conditions um, that allow you ultimately to have that optimal well-being. If we don't pay attention to this, I'm afraid we're going to keep having these conversations about how poorly we're doing as a nation with health. Yeah, we can focus on coverage and we can talk about all kinds of really interesting things and delivering financing. And don't get me wrong, I love to do that. But we also have to take into account community and we have to address things that are hard to talk about. Issues of race and injustice and inequity and disparities. Things that are greater now in terms of the haves and the have-nots than they've ever been. But yet, that's a harder conversation to have as a nation. Will we do it? I think we're brave and courageous enough. And if we want to see changes in these trends, I think that we have to have that discussion. Not to go off into a, a totally different track here, Katie, but um, this is such an important topic of conversation that I feel like most people don't get. I think... Ben, that's a really good way to transition back to well-being trust. Um, you know, you all think about mental, social, spiritual health um, on a national level every day. What do you think is the most important thing that you're working on right now, um, and how are you making it happen? Two things. One, I believe that mental health needs to play by some of the same rules as other social movements. If we were truly dissatisfied, as we have been in the past, with the way that we treated certain other conditions, HIV, AIDS, um, social justice, uh, marriage equality or inequality, and we applied those same tools and resources to address mental health, I think we'd be in a different place. So one thing that we're, I'm really excited that we're working on is how to advance the social movements of mental health. How do we create a consistent way to talk about mental health so that everybody gets on board? that new narrative piece that we described at the beginning. How do we come up with a financial engine that supports this advancement of a, a new vision for mental health? How do we create a policy arm that's strong enough that when there are people that are standing in the way of advancing mental health, that we can put dollars or resources into a person that would not? To me, like that social movement piece, it has what's, it's what's been missing. And I think it's also a challenge, but it's also extremely exciting opportunity. So we're working with folks that have done this in the past. We're working with an amazing public affairs group out of D.C. that helped lead the marriage equality movement. We're working with folks across the country on bringing them together and coalescing all the tribes around mental health to ultimately advance this in a new and different way. That's one thing. The second thing that I'm pretty excited about is our policy work. And so I just alluded to it in the social movement, but I actually think that um, from a policy perspective, there's been tremendous advocacy organizations out there focused on mental health and advancing it through policy. What we're trying to do is to not replace all these great groups. We're trying to say, hey, listen, we have a, a little bit broader frame. We're trying to be more comprehensive with how we think about mental health. So this fall, I'm really excited that we're going to be launching um, uh, what we call Healing in the Nation. And it focuses on policies specific to all the entry points that an individual might enter into seeking mental health care, which includes the workplace, which includes our schools, which includes our traditional health care delivery settings like primary care, which includes the criminal justice system, our jails and our prisons. It includes our first responders. 
For us, we believe that all of those entry points need to be properly supported to identify, ideally treat, and in most cases coordinate what mental health should look like in those settings. Um, I'm pretty excited about this, so I, I can't give you a date yet. We're still quibbling over if it's going to be November this or November that. But I'm sure by the time um, you know this is out, people will have uh, the website and we'll be able to share this a little bit more broadly. But I'm really excited about advancing the mental health work through policy. Ben, thank you so much for your time. Um, and, and thank you for, for talking with me about mental health and, and framing it in in a way that makes sense to employers and um, in the context of the workplace. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for you all paying attention to this. Employers are oftentimes one of the most important people in the room when it comes to discussions on mental health. Let's make sure that your voices are heard, stand up, step out, and let's be courageous in this dialogue. Okay, thank you, Ben, um, and thank you for, for listening to CouncilCast. You can listen more on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Please subscribe and leave us a review or a rating and tell us how we're doing. If you have any questions or comments for us, find us at ciab.com, at the CIAB on Twitter, or email us at councilcast at ciab.com. See you next time. Mm -hmm.